Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This passage is, of course, part of the revelation that Jesus or that John has on the Isle of Patmos when he's in the Spirit in the Lord's Day, and he has a vision of or a revelation of the risen Savior. And in this encounter, Jesus commands John to write about what he sees. And as a result, he writes seven letters to the seven churches in the Asia province. The letter that we've read is the letter to the church of Thyatira, which despite the fact that it's believed that the church of Thyatira is the smallest of the seven, and from a town that is the least significant or the smallest out of the seven, this is actually the longest of the seven letters written to the seven churches. And the introduction to the church uses quite big language. It paints for us a vivid picture. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Jesus speaks as one whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burning bronze. And that is significant, and we'll come to that at the conclusion of the message. So there's a hint to know when we're coming to the end. Watch out for that coming. But as Jesus begins his commentary on the church, he begins by commending them. He tells them that their church are a deeds, are a church whose deeds are known by heaven. They are a church that are recognized for their love and faith, for their service and perseverance. And according to Jesus, they are a church that is growing. Now, we don't know if the church is growing numerically, but we do know that the church is growing in influence and in impact because according to the passage, they are doing more in their current season of ministry than at any other period of ministry up until that point. So this is a promising start for the church of Thyatira. When we read this, we think, well done, you're doing good, church of Thyatira. But then when you continue to read on, it kind of goes all downhill from there. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have this against you. 
You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Suddenly, the rubber hits the road. And Jesus gets right to the nub of the issue. And the issue that he calls out is Jezebel. Now, it would appear that Jesus is referring to a particular person with a particular influence when he uses the term Jezebel. The problem individual is one who is teaching, one who is prophesying, one who is exerting influence within their church, and their behavior is described in less than flattering terms. Now, while it is clear that Jesus is addressing the issue towards a person, it is unlikely that that person is called Jezebel. Rather, here is a reference that links the behavior and influence that Jesus has a problem with to the behavior and influence of Jezebel that we read in the Old Testament. The fact that the book of Revelation was written centuries after the book of the Old Testament would suggest to us then that the greater issue is not the individuals and the particular people mentioned within the books of the kings and the book of Revelation, but rather the issue is with the spirit at work behind these individuals. And that's very important that we call that out. As we begin to unpack this and allow God to speak a little bit into what we're dealing with as a church, we have to begin by highlighting and stronger than highlighting, we have to make it abundantly clear that what we're dealing with here is not particular individuals or problem people. What we're dealing with here is a spirit. And when we recognize that the scripture refers to that as Jezebel, And while in both Kings and also in Revelation, this spirit seems to be embodied and presented through the feminine. We have a woman, a female character in Kings called Jezebel, and we have female pronouns used in Revelation. But before we dive into that, we have to arrive at a clear starting point that we all agree on. From this point forward in this message, we're going to seek to refer to this as a spirit of control as opposed to a Jezebel spirit. And this is not to move away from biblical language, but it's to help us position this properly. This is a spirit. It is a power of influence. And this influence and this spirit is not solely attached to the female or to the feminine. Too often in church circles, women who have stood up for themselves raised their heads above the parapet, sought to function in their anointing, or even those who perhaps required a little bit of discipling in terms of character over gifting or just a reminder of where the boundaries are, all too often women have been wrongfully branded as Jezebel. And all too often men and male characters in leadership and authority, when they have felt challenged, threatened, or a little bit out of their depth by members of the opposite sex, We have tarnished women as Jezebel, and that's not fair, and it's not accurate, and in fact, it's abusive and wrong. Now, please hear heart here before I say my next statement. I'm not perfect in leadership, far from it. My wife, my children, my closest friends, even the staff team will tell you that I am far from a perfect leader. I quite often get it wrong, and I can be a grumpy sod from time to time. However, as a male leader and as a spiritual father in this house, I would like to apologize to the women, ladies, and girls who have been called Jezebels. And this morning, I would like to repent of times that leadership have used this phrase 
to dismiss and deny in moments when discipline and discipleship have been required. And that instead of dismissing and denying, discipleship and discipline should have been applied and discipleship and discipline that did not involve spiritual name-calling or branding people with spiritual labels inappropriately. The truth is that in using these terms, leaders often embody the very spirit that they're decrying, don't they? This morning, I'd also like to make a request. I'd like to request that within the ministry, culture, and community of Glasgow Elam, we agree from this point forward to refrain from using the term Jezebel when describing, praying for, or referring to other people. In fact, the request is that when talking about this spirit that we're highlighting today, that we refer to it as a spirit of control and not a Jezebel spirit. That is not to soften what the Bible says about this, but it is to move away from the gender stereotypes that have wrongfully been permitted to exist within the culture of God's people. Now, all of that said, we cannot avoid the fact that a spirit of control is one that has to be dealt with. And clearly from reading what Jesus has to say about it, it's a spirit that he has an issue with and that he requests being dealt with. And here is the really interesting thing. The church that Jesus identifies with this influence is one that on the surface, everything seems to be going really well. It's doing loads of things. Its ministry scope has increased over its period of existence. The culture and the DNA of the church is strong, and it's strong in all of the right ways, according to these verses. They're a welcoming people. They are known for love. They are known particularly for their love displayed in service. They're known for being a people of deep faith and for putting their faith into action. It's more than just quips and sayings for the church of Thyatira. They are known for their actions and their deeds and they're recognized for service and particularly persevering in the face of hard times. This is a good write-up. You read this and you think Jesus has given them a pretty good TripAdvisor review. This is good press. But even though this is good, there is some stuff that is far from good. And the language that's used is Jezebel. Actually, the problem isn't so much the J word. The problem actually is identified in the word directly before it. The issue is tolerance. They tolerate this influence. They tolerate an influence that isn't correct, that isn't right, that doesn't reflect the heart of God. It's not from God. And when we read Jesus addressing it, we begin, begin to identify some of the characteristics of the influence that Jesus has an issue with. The first thing we see is that it's framed within the prophetic. Now again, let's be careful and clear with what we're saying here. The issue isn't with the prophetic. Those who function in the prophetic are not wrong. Females who function in the prophetic are not wrong. The point here is that the influence frames itself as prophetic. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Notice that Jesus doesn't refer to this person as a prophet and therefore highlight that the prophetic is the issue, but rather he calls out that the influence is one that claims to be prophetic, as in it dresses itself up as godly. It dresses itself up in a way that no one can argue with. Most pastors and leaders will tell you 
that the most challenging phrase that we encounter is when people open up a conversation or a sentence with, God has told me. And it's challenging because truth is, who can argue with that? We can, through discernment, begin to suggest, I'm not sure you're right there, but who can truly say God did or did not say that? Yes, there are things that when they're blasphemous, heretical, sacrilegious, we can call them out as false. When there's a clear disagreement with Scripture, it's easy to respond and say, no, that is not revelation. That was just too much cheese on your pizza last night. But it's the subtle phrases delivered as God spoke to me that are actually more about agendas, more about justifying positions, more about defending actions or making a point. Those are the ones that are subtle and hard to argue with. And those are the ones that you tend to find the spirit of control has an influence. A point has been made, but in order for that point to carry some kind of weight, it's dressed up as something that God has said. A suggestion has been made, but in order for that suggestion to be actioned upon, it's dressed up as God has spoken to me. The Spirit manipulates through presenting itself as something godly, something superior, something greater, something that is unknown to anybody else except the person that is bringing the revelation, of course. And that's reflected in what Jesus says. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those who do not hold on to our teaching and have not yet learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. When you read the wording here, Jesus is a bit passive-aggressive. There's a bit of sarcasm here. And he calls out that the root of this influence is demonic, but it's the phrase, so-called deep secrets. You can hear him almost saying it. Those that haven't yet held on to the so-called deep secrets. You can hear the sarcastic tone. Now, when we read this about Satan's deep secrets, it's surprising to us that anyone would choose to listen to anything attributed to Satan. Nobody in their right mind would say, Oh goody, please tell me Satan's deepest secrets and I promise I won't tell anyone. But could it be that actually what Jesus is laying bare here is, and revealing is exactly where these supposed deep secrets that no one else has an awareness of, those deep revelations that others wouldn't understand, that others can't understand, that other people aren't spiritual enough to see, could it be that Jesus is revealing the source, this influence he's addressing here, is one that dresses itself up as spiritual and spiritually exclusive spiritually superior but actually the spirit at work behind it is brazen he says by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols this influence that jesus takes issue with is one that teaches and in doing so it seeks to bring leadership it's one that seeks to mislead now to mislead is still to lead isn't it it's just to lead in the wrong direction And the Greek word that's used here in some translations, it's translated into English as to seduce, but it actually means to go astray or to roam. The direction that this influence leads towards is described in our Bibles as sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. But again, in the Greek language, sexual immoralities is described as to practice idolatry. And while there can be a sexual element to the influence that Jesus is calling out, it also has to be recognized that throughout the Old Testament, God calls his people to be faithful to himself and describes quite bluntly that when they pursue other gods and embrace their practices, they're committing adultery against him. 
The language he uses is that of immorality. So at the root of this spirit is a mission to mislead, to lead God's people away from faithfulness to God and to embrace other gods. That is other gods both in the literal spiritual sense but also in the metaphorical sense because it's not just spiritual stuff that we make idols out of, is it? In the book of Kings, Jezebel, like her namesake in Revelation, sought to seduce, that is to lead God's people away from their God to, to the gods of her culture and her people. She challenged the faithfulness of God's people to their God. And in these verses in Revelation, we see the influence that Jesus is challenging is one that has led his people to the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And while this is a very real issue for the people living in the town of Thyatira, we have to look not just at the outworking of actions and behaviors, but to look at the heart behind it because this is the view of Jesus. He says, then all churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Jesus is one who not only looks at deeds, but who searches hearts and minds because the actions of the hands originate in the heart and in the attitude and the thought processes and the meditation of the mind. That is why the leadership of this influence is attached to teaching and it's framed as prophetic because it targets hearts and minds in order to influence behavior and to change culture. It seeks to change the culture of the soul in order to impact the actions from the heart. And this is the influence that Jesus identifies as at work in the church of Thyatira. And it's so important for us to recognize that Jesus is addressing an influence, and unlike the Gospels, when he's addressing a spiritual demonic influence, he's not addressing one at work in an individual life. He's addressing one at work within a church. That's quite significant because if you think about it, every time we read Jesus casting something out or dealing with something, it's a spirit at work in an individual heart or an individual life. But here in Revelation, this is a spirit at work in a gathering of people. And it's a spirit at work in a gathering of people that have grown in shape and grown in ministry, a group that are pressing into God and love and faith and service and perseverance. And such an influence has risen up to try and derail and manipulate to try and change the culture of this people. And it sounds quite harsh to say, but we believe that God has highlighted a spirit of control at work in our church. Now, it would be easy when addressing a subject like this to turn straight to First Kings and read all about Jezebel and highlight all her negative traits and behaviors and attach that to the spirit. That's easy to do, and if I'm honest, that's something that in just a few moments we are about to do. But in order to highlight the significance of this and to present this biblically as a spiritual influence, we need to recognize not just a Bible character by the name of Jezebel who wasn't very nice and controlled her husband and everything else in sight. Actually, what we need to highlight is that centuries after that character was dead and gone, Centuries after that character existed, Jesus himself identifies an influence within a church setting which he calls by the same name because it demonstrates the same attributes. And when we see those similarities, even though there is such a significant time difference between the culture of the kings and the Old Testament and the culture of Revelation, the book of Revelation and the New Testament, when we see similarities, we can recognize this isn't just Pentecostal spiritual hype. This isn't just a biblical character, 
by which we take everything negative, everything controlling, and attach it to her name. This is an actual fact, a spiritual influence that we need to be aware of. Because the same traits are recognized within two situations that are centuries apart and for the same influence to be recognized in these two situations, and in fact we're going to highlight three and four, for the same influence to be recognized must mean that there's an eternal force at work in both. There is a spirit at work here. This isn't the case of two women with bad character issues. This is a spirit at work behind the soul. And as we call that out, we have to recognize it because all too often in our church circles, we set the target and the crosshairs on the soul that manifests the influence rather than the spirit at work behind the soul. Maybe we need to train ourselves to direct the anger towards the devil overplaying his hand as opposed to the soul his hand is manifesting through. Because our battle, remember, is not against flesh and blood, but it is against powers and principalities and spiritual forces at work in spiritual places. We have to remind ourselves that sometimes human traits and behaviors can have their origin in something spiritual at work. So let's look behind the person of Jezebel and let's look behind the human character to see the spirit at work and understand how her name has become synonymous with the spirit of control. Let's swing into the Old Testament and let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29. The first reference that we have to Jezebel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Jezebel is first mentioned through her union with Ahab. And the scripture doesn't really describe their union in favorable terms. Ahab is viewed very much as a weak king and a weak leader. And his weak leadership is seen in relation to his inability to correct his wife and more so in him being swayed by his wife. In fact, it says in 1 Kings 21-25, there was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. The urge to do that originated with Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of the Sidonians, but also thought to be the priest of Baal. When Jezebel came to Israel as Ahab's queen, she brought with her a religious culture that did not reflect God's standard. In fact, 1 Kings 18 and 19 tells us that 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah ate at Jezebel's table. Now the point here isn't that she was a very hospitable person. The point here is that her counsel, that is that which influenced her behavior, was not just false worship by false gods, but actually it was false prophecy and false prophets too. So there's a spiritual dimension then. Seated around her table were those that prophesied false prophecy to her. There's a spiritual dimension. And she brought that spiritual dimension to the palace, to the seat of government, into the very heart and soul of the nation. 
And the worship of Baal and Asherah was very much linked to the arrival of Jezebel within the nation. And we see that in the description in chapter 16 where it says of Ahab in verse 31, he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He also made an Asherah pole. The inference here is that these things didn't exist before Ahab. And they didn't exist before Ahab's marriage to Jezebel. Now already we can see the traits of the spirit of control shown here in the person of Jezebel. And we can see that they're the same as that which are called out in the book of Revelation. Like in Revelation, Jezebel is mentioned here in Kings in relation to the prophetic, in relation to misleading God's people, and in relation to idolatry. We see the same characteristics. So what are the characteristics of a spirit of control? Well, it's interesting that the introduction to the person of Jezebel sits within the narrative of Elijah. Elijah is a prophet of revival. His prophetic ministry is an unusual one. He facilitates revival and reformation. He's used by God to bring supernatural manifestations, miraculous exploits. In fact, his ministry and prophetic function completely altered the culture of an entire nation in just one day. He communicates the reality of God. And within the landscape of such a ministry rises one who operates with a spirit of control. The same is seen in the book of Revelation. We have a church of Thyatira who is growing in shape and size and influence. A church that is known for its deeds and its approach to ministry. And within a church that is thriving in its mission and pursuing the reality of God, there arises a spirit of control. And in both the book of Revelation and in the book of Kings... The spirit of control is found within the landscape of the prophetic. In Revelation, Jezebel is referred to as one who calls herself a prophet. In Kings, Jezebel has 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah prophesying to her at her dinner table. Jezebel and her false prophetic influences rise into the spotlight against a backdrop of a thriving prophetic ministry that is bringing God's influence to his people. See, the spirit of control is one that all too easily manifests within prophetic cultures, where those who claim to know secrets of God, who claim to have access to spiritual insight and revelation, begin to manipulate and control the people of God, even seduce people with their words and their revelations. We have to be careful. We can all too often get wowed by the prophetic. We can all too often get weak at the knees by revelations of God's heart and mind that flatter our spirituality with promises of grandeur and reveal to us ultimatums that will release blessings. Ultimately, when these voices and ministries, when we allow them to shape who we are without taking the steps of weighing up prophetic utterances, without taking the steps of seeking godly counsel, without taking the steps of aligning prophetic revelation against the word of God, when we allow these influences and voices to shape us without the necessary steps, we end up opening up our hearts and spirits to control and manipulation. Careful weighing up of the scripture, or careful weighing up of prophecy as scripture calls us to. Bouncing insight and revelation off of godly counsel. Bringing every word and utterance to the scripture. And checking that it matches and confirms what the scripture is already speaking. Taking these steps is not to quench the prophetic, 
but it's to ensure that that which guides and influences us is God. It's his voice. It's his personality. It's his agenda. It's to ensure that that which gains sway and influence over our life, controls our destiny and direction, is nothing other than the spirit of the living God. Now hear me on this. The prophetic ministry is a valuable ministry within the body of Jesus Christ. It's one by which God speaks and brings revelations of his plans and his purposes to his people. But prophetic ministry that exists out with the boundaries of authority and accountability is one that operates with a spirit of control. Child of God, be careful. Be careful of what you watch. Be careful of what you listen to. Be careful of what voice you place your soul under the influence of. It might sound spiritual. It might look holy. It might seem to be on the cutting edge of what God is doing and have all the thrills and thrills of the supernatural. But if it is not built upon accountability and authority and the structures of God, run from it. Close your soul off to his influence. Silence his voice in your spirit. Turn off the YouTube video. Unfollow the social media. Sever the soul tie and sever it now. Because it's dangerous. The spirit of control is one that has no respect for authority, accountability, and boundaries. Look at 1 Kings 21. Verse 1. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat, cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. There are two significant chapters in the story of Jezebel and her influence within the nation of Israel. In this chapter here, we have King Ahab spotting a vineyard that he covets. It's one that he wants for himself. He tries to broker some kind of deal with the owner of the vineyard, Naboth, but Naboth refuses. Ahab sulks and Jezebel steps in. Jezebel, his wife, says, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth. Significant point to highlight that is reiterated here is that Ahab is a weak king and he's presented to us as that. While it would not have been right scripturally for Ahab to exert his authority as king and take Naboth's vineyard, the truth of the matter is he's king. He could have done that. He could have. But he didn't. And as a result, Jezebel did. It might seem like a tenuous link, but the truth of the situation is that where there is a lack in strong leadership, 
a spirit of control rises up and fills the void. Now, as we talk about control, it should be noted not all control is bad. There are measures of godly control that the scripture calls us to operate with, both in our lives and within our churches. There are clear boundaries, clear approaches, clear practices that are called out as his plan and design. The fruit of the Spirit includes self-control, which would suggest then that part of the manifestation and ministry of the Spirit is to bring boundaries and order to things. However, where there is a lack of clear godly boundaries, where there is a void in leadership and authority, there becomes an opening for the Spirit of control. In Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the church in Thyatira, his issue is with a lack of spiritual authority and leadership and boundaries. Because while they've been doing so much that is right and good, they have been tolerating that which is wrong. The issue is that they haven't addressed the influence that's not correct. There has been a lack of leadership and authority. A doorway for the spirit of control is when there is an absence of godly boundaries, godly authority, and godly practices. The spirit of control seeks to manipulate authority, and it seeks to operate with a false authority. Look at what Jezebel did in verse 8. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with them. Jezebel manipulated authority. In fact, she operated with a false authority. She mimicked the king. She wrote letters in his name. She put his seal upon them as though he had written them. She dressed her agenda up as that which was right and presented it as that which was sanctioned with authority. To those in receipt of her letters, it appeared as though this was right and correct, whereas the heart of her actions was deceit. It was a manipulation of authority in order to control. Now notice... This display of manipulation and control appeared to be for the good of the king and his kingdom. But in actual fact, it was for personal gain. It was for a personal empire. It was to fulfill human will and desire. They saw something they wanted and they would just use whatever means they had to get it. We have to be careful of that which appears to operate in authority. That which presents as something great and good, we must look beneath the veneer to see, is this good for the king and the kingdom, or is there a personal agenda and empire being built around personality? God, for reasons unknown to me, favors and chooses the church. He chooses the local church as his conduit and structure for kingdom. The local church is his model for spiritual transformation, the salvation of souls, the making of disciples, and the complete renewal of communities. And while we don't have it perfectly formed in our outworking of that, the truth is that the local church is the structure that God uses to accomplish his purpose on earth. So be wary of those who fail to align themselves with God's structure. Be weary of that and those who seek to operate out with the boundaries of what his word calls out as his method of choice, that is the local church. Whilst on the surface it might seem good for the king and the kingdom, but if it or they fail to treat with respect the structures that the word calls out as correct, then by default they are not respecting the word of God itself. When you look closely at ministries and at personnel, you might find that on the surface it appears to be for the king and the kingdom, but looking deeper, 
you might find that actually at its heart it's building a personal empire. It's building around a personal agenda that glorifies man instead of glorifying God. Now as we see all of that, here's a truth. No church is perfect. Here's an even bigger one. This one isn't either. But as long as a church is trying its best to work out its mission in line with the word of God, it's on the right track. So please be wary of the parachurch. Be wary of organizations that set themselves up in addition to or in place of the local church. Be wary of that which presents itself as having authority but exists and functions out with the biblical boundaries of authority. Please look beneath the veneer. Is this really for the king and the kingdom? Please look and be wary of the spirit of control that can dress itself up as that which is for the king and the kingdom, but is actually about achieving personal agendas. A prime example of this actually is in Acts 16, an unusual passage, where it says, once when they were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. I don't know about you, but I've often been challenged or puzzled rather reading this passage because when you read it, it looks like what the girl is doing is something good. She is a walking megaphone of evangelism. She's following the disciples around, shouting aloud, drawing the attention of the crowd to the disciples and their message. These men are servants of the Most High who are telling you the way that you're to be saved. On the surface, it appears as something good. On the surface, it seemed good for the king and the kingdom, but at its root, something was afoot poetry intended. (laughs) Paul recognized there was a spirit at work and that it was not the spirit of God, so he addresses it. There was a spirit of control that had attached itself to the work of God in order to gain influence towards its own agenda, which the pastor called out at the very beginning was not of God and was actually for its own literal personal gain. Now again, notice the prophetic element here. This woman is acting in a prophetic sense. She's calling out the work of God. She's making clear. She's announcing the plan and the purpose of God. In the surface, it's something almost prophetic, but actually attached to that is the spirit of control. I guess the concept was that in validating the message of the disciples, it would validate her own message and therefore the means by which she made her owner's money. Now, we said there were two main chapters in the life of Jezebel, and the other is seen in her confrontation with Elijah. First Kings 18, we're presented with a pretty powerful truth. It says, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. The stark truth in these verses is that Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets. And it would be very easy to make claims here, claims that are not without merit, claims along the lines of the spirit of control hates the prophetic. That's not an untrue statement. But actually, the spirit of control does more than just limit the prophetic. Its target is the life of God among the people of God. 
See, it wasn't just that Jezebel was killing off the prophets, but that in doing so, she was cutting off that which facilitated the life of God among the people of God. She was removing that which presented his reality. And Jezebel, you'll notice, is one that is constantly associated with death. In 1 Kings 18, she's killing the prophets. In 1 Kings 19, she threatens to take the life of Elijah. In 1 Kings 21, she manipulates and masters the death of Naboth so that they can get his vineyard. And the thing we need to realize about the spirit of control is that its target is life, and in particular, the life of God among the people of God. The death of the prophets, the threat to kill Elijah, wasn't just about putting people to death that Jezebel didn't like. It was about removing that that facilitated the life of God amongst the people of God. See the same in Revelation. Jezebel is recognized as thwarting the life of God amongst the people in the church. The influence of the Spirit is having a consequence upon their spirituality. So Jesus calls it out and he wants it dealt with. The Spirit of control is one that seeks to limit and inhibit the life of God among the people of God. So to deal with the Spirit of control in operation is to deal with that that restricts and inhibits the people of God from stepping into fullness. It's to deal with that that prevents the church from achieving its potential. It is to remove that which actually seeks, actively seeks, to oppose revival and growth. And does that suggest what might happen when we begin to deal with that Spirit? So how can such a spirit attach itself to a person, to a people, to a church? What are the doorways? Well, we've already highlighted some. Lack of strong leadership. Tolerance and failure to address that which is incorrect or in need of discipline or discipleship. People ministries, agendas that are empire-focused, not kingdom-rooted. Connection with stuff and people in ministries that presents itself and builds itself out with the basis of scripture that places more focus on revelation than on the scripture that presents itself or presents ministry as the alternative to the local church instead of existing in accountability to the structures and the authorities that God has put in place it's people, ministries, agendas that see something that they want and will stop at nothing till they get it. It's people, ministries, and agendas that operate with a false authority, a self-proclaimed anointing, a self-proclaimed gifting and authority that lacks any accountability. Now, where we've identified these characteristics in a corporate sense in terms of their operation, we have to recognize the gateways for such a spirit in an individual life, too. And this is when we turn the message a little bit and navigate towards a landing and towards some good news. And that in itself is good news. Good news is coming, by the way. 1 Kings 19, verse 2 and 3 is the moment that Jezebel threatens Elijah. In this moment, we see a spirit of control, not an operation within a nation, not amongst a group of people, but it is directed towards an individual. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Three gateways are highlighted here. The first is offense. When Jezebel heard what Elijah had done to her prophet, she was offended. She was enraged. The second was vows. She made a vow. May the gods deal with me, be ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. The third is fear. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. We have to recognize these three gateways as those that have controlling influences in our lives. 
Offenses are powerful. They have the ability to control the emotions, the feelings, the reactions, even the very culture of the soul. Vows bind the soul to that which we've sworn to. They are a controlling influence because they bind us and fasten us to an outcome. Fear. Fear is a controlling emotion that dictates our behavior and dictates our reactions. Now, we're not going to go into these because we've spent time over these past few weeks teaching on these subjects and ministering on them in an attempt to deal with the doorways for the Spirit in our own lives and within the life of our church. We recognize then that these are the roots of the Spirit, the tentacles by which it attaches itself to a soul and even to a church. And to back that up, permit me to direct your attention to one other example whereby we see the same spirit at work in the same doorways. And it's in a different place. It's in Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, slip over to Mark 6 and verse 17. It says, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. She went outside and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison and brought back his head in a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. This is the account of the death of John the Baptist. And what we recognize about John is that he's a phenomenal prophet. He's facilitating the life of God. He's calling people to repentance, making ready a people for the Lord. He's a forerunner of revival. And he's one who, interestingly, goes on in the spirit of Elijah. Within the landscape of prophetic influence, as the life of God begins to visit the people of God, within the ministry of Elijah in the New Testament, the spirit of control rises up. And it rises up in a similar way, in a similar setting. It rises up with a king being influenced by his wife. Herodias is seeking to eliminate the source of life amongst the people of God. And we see the spirit of control personified in her and the same gateways are there. We see offense. John had been saying to her, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. John had challenged unrighteousness. He called out the sin of Herod in taking his brother's wife of his own and she took offense at this. She held a grudge against him and that grudge controlled her behavior, her attitudes and her reactions and she wanted to remove that which offended her. This is challenging because all too often when we become offended by someone or something, that offense can not only control the way that we feel, think and act towards other people, but 
When we become offended, very often we want that which caused offense to be removed. Removed from our lives, removed from our friendship group, removed from our family, removed from our church. Offenses can be significant doorways, not just as an influence of the spirit of control in our lives, but actually offenses can be doorways that see us operating with a controlling spirit too. The second doorway in the passage is vows. The king said to the girl, ask me, friend, you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with oath, with an oath. The king swore on oath to give whatever his wife's daughter asked of him. His oath and his vow bound his soul to a particular outcome. It controlled him because in verse 26, it says the king was greatly distressed because of his oath and his dinner's guests, and he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately ordered the executioner. Control was exercised in this situation through oaths and vows. We have to be very careful of swearing oaths and vows because they truly have the power to alter the culture of the soul. They attach us to what we've sworn to and what we vowed to do. They can control the very epicenter of who we are. But thirdly, we see fear. And again, it's a tenuous link. But we see that the king is greatly distressed. Could there be a hint of fear here? Fear of not being seen to deliver his oath. Fear of not being seen as a man of his word. Fear of letting his wife's daughter down. Fear of his wife. Fear is the most controlling emotion and feeling that we have. It controls the way that we behave, the way that we act, the way that we respond. And again, fear can also cause us to act in controlling ways to ensure that that which we're scared of doesn't happen again or to ensure that fear doesn't exist anymore because we're always in control of what's happening round about us. The doorways in Mark are the same. The characteristics are the same. Herodias has a want and she'll stop at nothing till she gets it. She manipulates others to achieve her goal. She eliminates the prophetic, that which is facilitating the life of God amongst the people of God. We see a further example of the spirit of control. We need to guard against both displaying a spirit of control but also opening up our soul to its influence. How can we tell we're on the receiving end of a spirit of control and we're bringing this into land? We'll notice in 1 Kings 19 it says in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah was gripped by fear. A very real anxiety and worry visited his soul. He became disturbed and distressed within himself, a bit like Herod in Mark chapter 6. His inner equilibrium became disturbed. He lost his peace. A spirit of control seeks to alter the inner equilibrium. It can cause unprovoked and unexplained anxiety and discomfort to arrive within the soul. It can disturb the peace of the heart. Sometimes when we have that feeling of feeling disturbed and distressed and no clear reason why, sometimes we can identify this spirit at work. Secondly, we see Elijah left his servant in Bathsheba. He isolates himself. He removes himself from other people. He comes to a place where loneliness visits his soul and he feels vulnerable and exposed. If you remember when God visits him in the cave and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And Elijah says to him, it's because I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. Get a grip. 
Elijah's in this place where his perception doesn't reflect the reality of the situation. And the spirit of control has the ability to make you feel isolated and alone. It can actually alter your perception of reality. And Elijah ran. He ran from where he was meant to be. He ran from purpose. And he comes to God and he says, I've had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He wanted to give up. He hit a low. He felt disconnected from his purpose. He felt that he couldn't continue. He felt like jacking it all in. The spirit of control is one that targets the life of God within the people of God. It seeks to derail God's people, cause them to feel like failures, to push them to the boundaries of perseverance and make us feel like the best thing that we can do is just give up and walk away. Elijah was targeted by the spirit of control. And he felt the full force of its might. But here's the thing. God didn't leave Elijah there. This is the good news. He didn't leave him in the grip of the spirit of control. No, he brought him to a place where he brought him into an encounter, delivered him from the spirit's grip, and repositioned him back in purpose again. In Revelation, Jesus highlights the spirit of control at work in the church of Thyatira, but he doesn't leave the church in chastisement because they've tolerated this spirit in their midst. No, he speaks to them as one whose feet are of bronze and whose eyes are like blazing fire. In other words, he sees what's going on and he's ready to trample upon it. He has feet of bronze. They might be moved and influenced by this spirit, but he is unmoved by it. His positioning and who he is is not changed by it. And his eyes of fire see right through it and he's ready to eliminate it. He chastises the church for their tolerance, yes. But then he makes some amazing promises. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I'll not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my father, I will also give you the morning star. Jesus encourages the church. Those that recognize what's going on and don't permit the influence anymore, to those who remove the ungodly influence and choose instead to cling to the influence of Christ, to those he is going to give victory and spiritual authority, to those that stand against the spirit and eliminate its influence are those to whom he's going to give his authority because he's going to cause them to rule the nations. Who rules the nations but him? And this promise to rule the nations with the iron scepter and to dash like pottery, that's a messianic reference from Psalm 2. It's a prophetic announcement of Jesus. So, so to those who stand against this spirit of control are those who function in Christ's authority and who live in his victory. In fact, he says he's going to give them the morning star. What does that mean? Well, there's many meanings, but don't worry, I'm only going to highlight one. The planet Venus has often been referred to as the morning star because it appears on the horizon just before the sun does. Venus is closer to the sun than we are, the second planet, in fact, second closest. And the thought process then was that when you saw Venus on the horizon, you knew that the sun wasn't far away. 
Now don't worry, we're not steering into astrology or any of that nonsense. But here's an encouragement. To see the morning star was to know that soon darkness would end and daylight would burst on the horizon. To see the morning star was to know that just around the corner everything was going to get made new again. To see the morning star was to know that a new day was just about to begin. Perhaps God would encourage us as we seek to deal with the spirit and loose its grip from the soul of our church that not only will he give us victory and authority in spiritual places as we address it, but actually on the other side of this moment of warfare lies a brand new day for Glasgow Elam Church. And I think that's why perhaps at this point in time, God puts the spotlight on it and brings it to our attention. I think this is why in this moment and in this season, he empowers us to deal with it. Because as a church, we're on a threshold moment of a brand new season. And as we get ready to step into a new day and a new season, it's time to deal with this thing. It's time to remove it from the culture of our church. Because actually in doing so, that could be what sees us step fully into the brand new day and into what is ahead. It's time to deal with it. And God's empowering us to step fully into this. This morning, we need to perhaps come to a place before we go to a place of prayer and warfare and intercession, of coming to a place of just setting our eyes on the one whose feet are like burnished bronze and whose eyes are like blazing fire. Time for us to come and perhaps deal with some of the doorways, fear, offenses, vows, and close them off. Time for us perhaps to come and repent for the ways in which we've perhaps opened up our souls, aligned with the wrong stuff, or maybe even demonstrated a controlling spirit. But also, I believe that this morning there's time for us to receive ministry to find freedom from the effects of that spirit on our life. And we do that simply by turning our eyes to the one whose feet are like burnished bronze and whose eyes are like blazing fire. He is unmoved and unmovable. He sees right through it. And those fire in his eyes doesn't just burn up and destroy all that is not of him, but it speaks of a burning passion for his bride and a love for you and for me that calls him to deal with this stuff and to set us free. Church, it's time to deal with it. It's time to find freedom. It's time for Glasgow Elam's brand new day. Would you stand with me,